How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. These guys are barrels of fun. This is section 422. Oh, yeah, Welcome to the section 422 podcast, episode number 59. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. On this episode, we will visit with Adam McAlvey, the Brewers beat writer for MLB.com and author of the soon to be released book, The Milwaukee Brewers at 50. We are also going to discuss the 67-page document outlining MLB's proposed medical and safety protocols to potentially start the 2020 season. Will, how's it going for you today? Doing really well, man. Just doing um, doing what I can, stay into a routine just like everybody else. But I'm healthy, I'm working, and so I'm fortunate and... Yeah, it's there's a lot going on with baseball. Not sure where anything stands. I'm not too sure if anybody else does either. Um, and we'll get into it. But it could be it could be pretty newsy in the next couple of weeks, or at least in the next week or two. Yeah, you just feel like there's at least some sort of progress forward towards a resolution. What that resolution is going to be uh, remains to be seen. So I'm excited to take a trip down memory lane with Adam today, and uh, the book looks outstanding. So. We're going to get a lot of good insight from him. We are very pleased to be joined by Adam McKelvey, Brewers beat writer from MLB.com and the author of the upcoming book, The Milwaukee Brewers at 50. Adam, first off, congratulations on the release of the book. That'll be tomorrow, Tuesday, May 19th. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It's, it's weird to hold something in your hand that you've been looking at on PDF for like a year and a half. <laughs> and then it shows up and it's a real thing. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I was looking through a PDF version of it and the overall amount of work that went in from a writing standpoint, a photography standpoint is just outstanding. I think people are really going to enjoy this. Um, and you've covered a large portion of Brewer's history, starting with MLB.com back in 2001. Uh, but as you wrote about the, the early history of the franchise, did it really start to hit you just how humble the beginnings were in year one back in 1970? Yeah, I mean, to me, that is where I started when I told the story. And it, I think the most interesting part of the tale of this franchise is it's something that is so foreign to what we think of professional sports today, where it's big industry and there's so much money involved and just so many just people involved in, in all of these franchises. Um, in 1970, it was really on the first day, it was Bud Selig. And he'd worked for five years, um, really even more than that. Before the Braves left for Atlanta, he was already working to first keep them in Milwaukee and then to find a, a replacement. And then five years of just utter disappointment over and over and over before he finally got word um, officially April 1st, 1970. And when he showed up at County Stadium that day, he was the front office. 
and he was 35 years old. And in the span of a week, they built a team and, you know, put together uh, enough pieces to host opening day against the California Angels on April 7th, 1970. And just to think about that, it compared to the way these sort of things happen today when franchises move or there's expansion, it's just, you know, apples and oranges. It's a totally different world. And it was very humble beginnings. And, you know, they didn't, they weren't a very good team for a number of years then, but slowly but surely they built into, uh, you know, the, the, the playoff teams of the late seventies and, and then early eighties and, you know, some really good teams. So very, very humble beginnings. And what strikes me in sort of going back and digging through the newspapers from that time is how fast and furious everything was happening. It was pretty incredible. 35 years old. That's striking to me, man. That's, yeah. that's That jumped out at me when I was reading the book. A, a couple of quick ones. When you're deciding on the layout, I, I love the photos. I love how it's all pieced together. It's a easy read, but at the same time, it's, it's inviting. It's compelling page to page. It just is one of those books that you want to open up just from looking at the cover and just going through it. How'd you decide on the layout like that? And, and what was your favorite part of reporting on the book? Well, I'll start with the second half first, because my favorite part was the stuff we were just talking about, digging into that first week, because, you know, as you guys said, I've covered the team, basically the Miller Park era. My first Brewers game was an exhibition game against the Red Sox or White Sox. In 2001, they played the Red Sox and White Sox back to back. I forget who came first, but that was my beginning. Um, so I, you know, I, the Miller Park era, I've been fortunate to witness. I've written so many times over the years about, you know, 1982, obviously, even 1987 in the Easter Sunday story. So some of those stories were very familiar, but that very early founding of the franchise, I had not spent a lot of time working on before. And it was my first chance to, you know, like I said, I went to the Milwaukee Public Library and there's great files there with newspaper clippings and just to kind of read the day to day, the the wild swings of emotion that baseball fans must have been feeling as they watched this Seattle Pilots possibility ebb and flow. Um, you know, one day, it felt like Major League Baseball was back and the next day it was dead in the water. And it was like unbelievable to sort of ride that roller coaster through those clippings and to learn about just the little intricacies like, you know, they had to hire a broadcast team. Um, they had to stock the concession stands. They had to have the American League come in and certify the field in that week. They had to figure out a, a contract with the Milwaukee County to, you know, play in County Stadium. There was just so many details that you think about that go into uh, Major League Baseball. And it was fascinating to kind of watch that unfold. So that was just for me personally, the most interesting part to learn myself about some of that um, very early history of the book. And, and as far as presenting that story, you know, I can't take any credit for it. No, number one, there's a, a designer, Alex Lubertozzi, uh, who's with Triumph Books. And what we had working for us, what I had working for me as a first time author who had you know, absolutely no idea what in the world I was doing, um, is that Alex had also designed and edited a, a book with uh, the, the, the Beavers up in Green Bay, a, a father-son duo, photographer duo, um, who took, you know, the most iconic photographs of the Green Bay Packers over the years. And they had put together this book celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Packers 
that came out basically in the middle of, I remember getting my hands on it in the middle of last summer. So our book is the same format, the same size, the same finishes, the same paper stock. I mean, it is a, it is very similar in terms of the look and feel of the thing to that Packers book. And Alex did just an amazing job of sort of building the foundation of the book. Um, and, you know, even, you know, kind of starting us in, in choosing which a lot of the photos that were going to be in the book based on players that we talked about. And then the, the my, you know, my friends at Triumph using their expertise and which photos are sort of the best in a book like this to get the right feel that you want. Um, so really, Alex did a lot of that, the, the foundation of it while I was writing the chapters and then we came together towards the end of last season and then started fine tuning. Um, and I spent tons of time going through the Brewers photo archives, um, making choices, processing those photos into a high res image that could be used because a lot of these exist just on slides and file cabinets. So a lot of the stuff at the end was sort of, you know, fine tuning a, a framework that was already there thanks to Alex and, and the rest of uh, the folks at Triumph Books. So we, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that just the timing of the whole thing was just right uh, following that Packers book that, you know, we ended up with something I, I think people are, you know, really going to like. The early feedback is awesome, like to see someone hold it for the first time and, you know, sort of be surprised at its heft and just, how, you know, it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool feeling to see people, you know, just like the look of it from, from the second they hold it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool to have a, a coffee table book uh, about a team that you, you're really passionate about, too. So uh, one of the things that really jumped out to me is the mascots page. There's an awesome <laughs> photo uh, of a man named Milt Mason, and I had no idea that there was actually a real person who inspired Bernie Brewer. How did the organization's beloved mascot evolve from a man named Milt Mason? Well, it is the, you know, again, you talk about different world, right? You know, this, this, was, this was a man who was a retired aviation engineer, and he decided that he was going to live in a trailer perched atop the county stadium scoreboard <laughs> until the team drew a sellout crowd. And it became quickly clear that a sellout was going to be difficult. So they, they lowered the standard to 40,000, and um, he was up there for weeks, and he had a, a whole setup where... There were phones where he could talk to fans and the press. Um, he, he was able to cook up there. Apparently, he liked to cook leg of lamb, which is the most 1970s thing I've ever heard. Um, and he, he lived up in this trailer until uh, it was bat day in August when they finally exceeded that 40,000 threshold. And he comes sliding down a rope and he burned the hell out of his hands on, on the rope. And basically said, you know, it was an f- interesting experience, but one I don't think I want to do again. And that is sort of later on what inspired Bernie Brewer um, to, you know, at the time at County Stadium, it was a chalet. You know, he had his house up there, and now it's sort of the, I don't know, the, the dugout. I, I still miss the chalet. That exists at Lakefront Brewery in Milwaukee. If anyone is ever out around town, when we get back to normal and wants to go get a beer, you can... You can still see the chalet. Part of it is inside at Lakefront, and then part of it is actually outside, and they use it as like an auxiliary. You know, you can go order a beer at the at Bernie Brewer's 
original chalet, which they uh, deconstructed when they took apart County Stadium. Such an entertaining part of that book, by the way. One of my favorite parts <laughs> of the book is, is just like learning about the Brewers' move out of County Stadium and how it involved actually a never-before-told story from Hank Aaron. Do you mind uh, taking us through that a bit? I mean, that, that was like super cool to just read through. I don't want you to reveal everything, of course, but do you mind just taking us through that a bit of that section and how that came to be? And what maybe even came across your mind when Hank Aaron is telling you, hey, I never told this story before. Well, first of all, I was just trying to like, you know, not, not lose my mind sitting there having this fantastic conversation with, with Hank Aaron. He was very kind with his time when the Brewers were in Atlanta last year and he was out uh, at a ball game and I was able to meet him down in a suite and we sat and sort of shared, he shared his memories of returning to Milwaukee and, and his involvement really in that trade to bring Hank Aaron back to Milwaukee um, for 1975 and 76. And he, you know, his stats don't look very good, but you talk to Robin Yount about how he turned the corner from 18 year old kid in 1974, who set the all time franchise record for errors and how by 1978, he became a really good major league player. Um, Henry Aaron is front and center in that story and, and bringing Hank back to Milwaukee played a huge role in the player that Robin Yount became. Um, and then, you know, Aaron was very close with Bud Selig, and that goes back to the Milwaukee Braves days when um, Aaron and other players would get their cars from the Selig dealership. They sort of remain close and still remain close to this day. So when Bud Selig was fighting to gain public funding for Miller Park, um, people like Robin Yount, Bob Euchre was very involved, and, and Hank Aaron got involved. And Aaron says he gets a call one day from Bud Selig to say, I need you in Madison, can you help me? And, and Bud sent, sent a plane down to Atlanta to pick up Henry Aaron and they would go in and meet with the legislators in Madison. And that included you know, guys like Euchre. Euchre would get up and do 15 minutes of his material to try to loosen everybody up. And then Bud would let, you know, lay down the hammer and essentially beg for, for money for, to, to keep the team in Wisconsin. Um, and the, the story that Aaron tells is sort of reveals just how bitter that fight became. It's a, it's a, it's a dark period in, in, I think, Bud Selig's tenure, um, and one that is, you know, it's difficult to, to look back on because there were, the, the emotions were so high. And, you know, the question has always been, was Bud Selig serious about moving the team out of Milwaukee had Miller Park not come to fruition? So Aaron has one view, and then Bud's public view is maybe a little bit different. But ba basically, the point that, that Aaron was getting at was just, you know, it was his firsthand witness to how ugly and bitter that fight was. And look, it came down to one man, George Petak, a legislator out of Racine who uh, was against public funding for ballparks, but also believed in the value of uh, Major League Sports and, and Major League Baseball in Milwaukee. And he ultimately at the last minute, cast the deciding vote in favor of the funding package. It cost him his seat. He was recalled. And, you know, he became, for many Brewers fans, you know, a hero because he's, to, to many people, um, this, the savior of baseball in Milwaukee because no one exactly knows how that story would have been different had he not cast that vote, and, and even though it cost him his job.
And you have to think, too, just given how little expansion there's been in the last 20 years, if the Brewers had left, there probably still wouldn't be a team in Milwaukee unless the always about to move Tampa Bay Rays or something would have relocated (laughs) here at some point in the last decade. But uh, Adam, Will and I have talked uh, about the Brewers Mount Rushmore, and of course, Robin Yount and Paul Molitor are two locks for that. It almost seems impossible to leave Ryan Braun out of the mix when you look at his overall body of work and the fact that his entire career may be spent in a Brewers uniform. But would you put Braun in that group? And if he's in, who would you choose as the fourth member of the Brewers Mount Rushmore? Yeah, look, it's it is a it is an interesting debate because there's certainly two, Yount and Molitor. Um, you know, I put Jim Gantner in that group, and I have a different view of Jim Gantner than maybe some, um, and perhaps it's just bias because you get to know him over the years and the way he stayed involved in the franchise. To me, longevity is really important, especially in a sport like baseball where it's an everyday game where you feel these connections to players and you feel like you grew up kind of with these players in your home and you see their faces, um, you know, they're not wearing helmets. To me, it's just a different sport than others. And I I think whenever, you know, we're doing a lot of uh, rankings while we're filling time, while there's no live baseball. And I, I do kind of catch myself letting longevity be very, very high on my list of criteria and not just performance. So, look, it's a totally sentimental pick, and it's totally based on him being a local Wisconsin guy who played for this team for 17 years. But, but to me, I, I put Jim Gantner in that group. And then this other, uh, we can have the debate about whether non-players can be involved because it's really hard to leave Bob Euchre out of any discussion about like the most influential men that are associated with this fran- men and women who are associated with this franchise. I mean, Euchre, you know, like Vin Scully maybe in LA and um, you know, maybe Jack Buck, uh, the late Jack Buck in St. Louis and Ernie Harwell in Detroit is so identified with many Brewers fans with the franchise and kind of the voice of summer. And you know, I, I would fight to put Bob Euchre on my Brewers Mount Rushmore, even though he never wore the uniform. He did throw, well, he did wear, wear the uniform because he used to throw batting practice. Um, so I can't say he never wore the uniform, but he never played for the Brewers. But I think Euchre is, um, Euchre's got to be in that discussion. If we're going to limit it to players, my fourth, and, and again, maybe this is bias for uh, the early 80s, but Cecil Cooper is, I think, one of the most underrated players certainly for the Brewers, maybe in baseball, because he was an MVP caliber player for a a lot of years and never really got credit for it because there would always be some circumstance where someone else was getting all the oxygen. George Brett would chase 400 and Cecil Cooper having this epic season would be sort of, you know, the next tier. Um, Jim Rice was so good at that time. There There were a lot of great ball players in the American League when Cooper was at his peak. And I think it's contributed to Cooper kind of getting forgotten over time. So, look, I mean, I've now named like five guys. You named Ryan Braun. (laughs) If we're looking at just pure production, certainly he's one of the most productive players ever. Um, And if you leave out all the -the off-the-field stuff, you've got to include him. So we've quickly, um, you know, we need a bigger mountain because it's, it's hard to find a clear four for this particular team. 
That's exactly how the conversations with Derek and I have gone, by the way. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we quickly get to those five or six, and then we start talking about other people who um, are influential people and voices in the brewer's history that you just can't leave off. So you have to have those sort of caveats included and whatnot. Um, you know, at my ripe age of 30, I've come to the idea that longevity is also something that matters. And so I, I always was like, ah, nah, man, he's, he, this person's a compiler. This person just adds up statistics. He was just around for a long time. There's some, there's something to be said about being able to do that. Um, and so I've kind of with you there. Um, you, you, all those names that you mentioned, uh, they're included in your book. They're written about, you've spoke to them. The reporter in me kind of wants to know just who took the longest to sort of get a hold of as far as just somebody that you knew you needed in that book that just for whatever reason you were up, maybe up against it or anything like that, any sort of like white whale story that finally happened for you uh, that just sort of made you excited? Yeah. Prince Fielder was, was that guy and not because he's, you know, difficult because um, Will, you, you interviewed Prince Fielder and he's a great interview, right? I mean, he's, um, he's a lot of fun to talk to. It was just a circumstance of trying to pin him down. You know, it's not his favorite thing to do. And he's got a lot of other stuff going on in his life and a couple of kids. And it's just a matter of sometimes, and it was like this covering him as a player too. It was just a matter of kind of getting him in one place for a little bit of time. Um, so I was, I remember being at Miller Park, the season's over. So we're post wild card game and in the off season and diving through photos and, and going through the archives. Um, and, uh, Prince finally called and I remember just jumping out into the press box, the empty dark press box and doing that interview there and just being really happy that I was able to get his voice in the book because, you know, this book is sort of a combination of things I had written over the years, or at least anecdotes I had written over the years that I re sort of repurposed and folded into this book. But I didn't want it to be all old stuff, for lack of a better term. I, I, I spoke to as many of these guys as humanly possible to try to get fresh memories and maybe try to tell some different stories. So I was really excited just to get Prince with a little more passage of time um, and you know, just sort of get his thoughts on winning finally after, you know, that guy likes to win as much as anybody ever. And as competitive and fiery a player as that, that Prince Fielder was the soul of those teams in the late 2000s and early 2000, well, 2011 before he left. Um, and, you know, his, his, he left and then was gone for a long time and then came back in 2018 when they um, put him into the Wall of Honor, I think it was. And it was the first time where he, you know, it maybe like reconnected him to the organization a little bit more. So I, I just wanted to get those fresh thoughts. And I was really excited when I was able to get him on the phone. And he was awesome and telling stories and, um, you know, talking about some of his favorite people, which is Ricky Weeks, one of his best friends from childhood. Um, Trevor Hoffman, who was such a two years, but such a big part of what happened in 2011, even though he wasn't there anymore and, and a big influence on Prince. So it was, um, th that was one of my favorite interviews was getting Prince on the phone. 
One last uh, question for you. In the modern era, since you started covering the team, we'll say, so basically the last 20 years, Adam, is Weeks the most underappreciated brewer that you can remember covering? Well, he is certainly the most, one of the most polarizing because, like, the casual fan remembers Ricky Weeks without a lot of fondness. He struck out a ton. Sometimes he looked bad doing it. Sometimes he looked pretty bad at second base. Um, and then at the end, when the Brewers had circumstances that w- would have been nice if he played a little outfield for him, he famously said, I'm a second baseman. And I think a lot of people, that left a very sour taste at the end of Ricky Week's tenure. But now you stand back and you look at the numbers that he produced, the longevity that he had, um, what he did from the leadoff spot in terms of you know, a little lightning, bolt of lightning at the top of the lineup. And also when you kind of look at some of the advanced stats from an offensive point of view, they look pretty fondly on Ricky Weeks. Um, so, you know, it just depends on what what's important to you and what sort of, you know, analyst are you? Are you a batting average guy or are you going to look at some of the advanced stats? Uh, the other guy that comes to my mind is Carlos Gomez. I started, originally this was a little different version of a project that we still might do with Triumph called the Big 50, a series where they you pick 50 men and topics and tell the story of each team. So I was trying to come up with like the 25 or so best players in Brewers history. And Carlos Gomez is really high on that list when you use any kind of advanced stat, any kind of win, wins above replacement, because he did all the things in the outfield that he did, Um, his speed. Um, But another guy that when you watched him, sometimes you would just like, I mean, he would screw himself into the ground, fall down, his helmet flies off. He would do some kind of dumb things on the field. And it's another guy that the view, I think, over time has improved. And also, it it just, again, depends on what do you value as a fan when you look at who are the best players. And, And it's interesting how over time the view of that changes. I think it was Craig Council who once said, you know, we all get better over time. In other words, you look back on, fans look back on such nostalgia with the 82 team. The 82 team had plenty of holes. It was a great baseball team. But it's not as if they had, you know, 25 Mike Trouts. So, but over time, it becomes this mythical thing. And I think that happens with even the, some of the 08 and 11 in um, the, the era, the, the Fielder Weeks era, um, those guys look a little bit better over time when when you're able to really sit back and analyze what they did in the uniform. Yeah, I think maybe because uh, fans are, are so hungry for a World Series title, you know, teams when yep. they fall short, they're emotional about it. They don't realize just how good those players were and how close things uh, really were. But I'm with you on Gomez too. Such an exciting player, plays just an outstanding center field and. Had the unfortunate uh, overlap with uh, Hank the dog wandering into the park in Maryvale, which I think uh, reduced Gomez's popularity. I think <laughs> Hank's jerseys were just blowing up then, so people weren't buying the Gomez jerseys, and uh, that was uh, that was part of it. But uh, Adam, congrats again on the book. It looks outstanding, and thanks again for taking the time with us today. Guys, I appreciate the time so much. I mean, all of these conversations, they feel so good, like talking about baseball, we're all hungry to see the game again and it's you know right now we have the history to to look back at and it's with this franchise turning 50 it's it's a, an apt time to kind of look back at some of every, all of our good memories from the past
Adam, congrats again on the book. It looks outstanding. Thanks again for taking the time with us today. Pick up your copy of Adam's book, The Milwaukee Brewers at 50, locally in Milwaukee at Boswell Book Company. And you can also order online at triumphbooks.com. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com Brewers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com Brewers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, Will, we talked about it at the top. The news from the weekend, as reported by the Athletics' Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick, uh, is that Major League Baseball has put together medical and safety protocols for players with the hope of resuming the 2020 season, starting it really for the first time, but picking things back up again, starting with spring training again here in the next few weeks. It's 67 pages long, and in order to even safely consider returning to play, I realize it requires a great attention to detail and, and to look at every possible angle to keep everybody involved as safe as possible. How did you feel as you read this report? from Ken and Evan. Did you feel optimistic that Major League Baseball was headed in the right direction and that we were actually thinking about all the right things? Or did you come away with a different sort of reaction? Because I think you can look at it and come away kind of optimistic and feeling good, or you can look at it and say, wow, that's a a lot to have to worry about in order to actually make this happen again. Yeah, I felt both at different times while reading it. At first, I see it, and I'm like, okay. Because... You want to see progress. You want to see them working towards something. And for me, I said to myself, okay, this is that. They're getting the ball rolling here in a big way. They're outlining these safety issues, which, of course, as outlined elegantly by Sean Doolittle of of the Nationals relief pitcher, that's a major concern for for guys. Um, And some guys are not going to spell it out as well as he was able to and articulate it as well as he was able to. But he did a great job of doing just that. And so from that point of view, as I read it, I said, okay, this is moving toward the right direction. But then as I continued to read it, and especially afterward, and I hate to sound as if like I, I, I don't like the idea of playing or I don't like the idea of moving forward because I get both sides of the equation. But as I finished reading it, I thought to myself a couple of questions, one being if you have to outline all of this not only is it 67 pages but we're talking about things like they can't have they can't high five one another no spitting guys sitting in the stands as opposed to the dugout if you have to go through and take these measures is it really worth play is it really worth or safe playing that's really my my biggest question Again, if you have to do all these things, is it safe to even do this? Is it safe to even get this going like this at this time? And it's uh, really the main question because clearly, as a couple of outlets, The Athletic included, have outlined, baseball is sort of up against it where you have this window in the next couple of weeks where things really have to get going. 
for there to be any season at all because once we get into June and then July, it's like, okay, baseball is played the time that it's played for a reason. You know, it's not going to creep up into beyond November or anything like that. So there's that aspect of it. And then the other question that came to mind as I finished reading was, is this stuff really enough to keep the virus at bay anyway, all, all of these measures and precautions? Because you just can't really control people like for 24 hours a day. And so I don't know. I mean, I feel like these are these are the right things, I guess. But I'm not sure how effective it will even be. So I'm just reading this whole proposal in this story, and I keep thinking, take as many people out of the equation as possible, right? Like that's it's obviously the main way to reduce transmission of a virus. And one of the things that struck me near the end of the story, on the road, the players should essentially isolate at hotels with precautions uh, such as a prohibition on buffet-style meals. Okay, that makes sense. Luggage will be sent directly to players' rooms to avoid extra touch points. Yeah, why don't the players just carry their own luggage? I mean, like I realize we're <laughs> we're talking about people who are not used to necessarily doing that at every turn, right? But you know, just little things like that. That if you don't have to rely on as much hotel staff, that would be good. Um, I think this is. It's not quite like the Arizona plan where everybody was going to be in a bubble and nobody was going to see family. Like you can see immediate family and they're the only people who are actually allowed to visit players in their rooms. Socializing with other family members or friends is discouraged but not entirely prohibited. And you see the word discouraged in a lot of the the writing about this uh, this proposal as well. You know, showering at club facilities is discouraged. The use of indoor batting cages is discouraged when hitting outdoors is an option. Uh, a couple encourages. Uh, hitters are encouraged to wear batting gloves. I mean, generally, most players want to do that anyway. Uh, batting practice pitchers are encouraged to wear masks. So there's still, like, even within this, there are strict rules, but then there are also things that are encouraged and discouraged, which leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And I kind of get the feeling that things that are discouraged are things that will generally still happen anyway. Yeah, I agree. And that's why some parts of this, like sort of um, restart, like restarting this operation is in some ways, it's it's a leap of faith. It's like you're, you're encouraging and discouraging things and you're just hoping that people are going to do what is outlined as the right thing to do. And that, there's no guarantee of that. And so for me, again, I don't want to sound like all negative and just completely dismiss it but it's just it's just difficult to imagine unfortunately baseball pulling this off without some without somebody getting without somebody getting sick I feel like um that's like the biggest one for me so I don't know I again at the risk of repeating myself here a couple of times I just I, I don't mean to be negative with that but it's just hard to look at it realistically and say this is going to work out exactly as it's just it's just not I just feel like it's again it's just difficult to imagine baseball pulling this off and and nobody getting sick or or um some sort of a, a consequence that that was just not expected or not wanted yeah, and if you start looking into it further, you say, well, what happens if someone tests positive? Does that stop games for a few days? Does it stop games for a week? Does that entire team go into quarantine? Uh, that's the, the big question. When 
spring training happens, individuals who are tested upon arrival, which will be you know everybody, it's going to be at staggered times, and it's going to include a temperature check with a contactless thermometer, body fluid, and blood samples. Uh, but everyone who's tested must self-quarantine at his or her spring training residence until the results of the testing are reported, likely 24 to 48 hours. And any individual who tests positive is then instructed to self-quarantine and gets treated accordingly. It's not really clear what happens after that, right? For anybody else who may have come into contact with that person, it's addressed in some way, but I don't think it's addressed completely. And I think that's going to be sort of the next step towards really finalizing something like this proposal. Yeah, it is. And it's funny that you mentioned like spring training. It's going to, it's going to be June, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like, it's like, man, we're, we're so, as I said before, we're, we're sort of up against it here with baseball where there's this window and I just, I just don't, it's different, man. If like you're, if you're having this conversation maybe last month as opposed to getting toward the, toward the end of May or at least on the opposite side of where you want to be in May, we're closer to the end than the beginning of the month. And so that means that we're closer to June and time is unfortunately running out a little bit um, or it's flipped and that sand is dwindling a little. So you just would hate to see anything just these major decisions, right, is what I'm trying to get at. You just hate to see time being such a huge factor in it, but I just unfortunately feel like it is. No, it, it definitely is because even with indoor facilities and, and being flexible with the schedule in the postseason, potentially you really can't run the season much later than the early to middle part of November, right? Like if you start getting further than that, you're really, really kind of pushing it as far as the facilities go. Yeah, unless you're Bryce Harper, did you see his? Uh, did you see his uh, plan on Instagram? <laughs> no, what was Bryce Harper's plan? Uh, it was something crazy, like playing 135 games this season, playing like 20 in November, no days off, like <laughs> double headers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like a. Play, it was more like a fun idea. I feel like um, he's, he's joking around, just, like, hey, that's. I, I think it he out. was kind of serious, but like, I think that. Um, I mean, as serious as it could be, but I think it was more just to kind of get the conversation going or I don't know, but it was just, I, I laughed when I saw it just because of how it's good to kind of have these conversations. Of course, it's better than not. Um, but it's just funny that, yeah, that's just, you could just look at that and just say to yourself, yeah, that's not going to happen. Big guy. Sorry. No, that that's not going to happen. But I, I think my general takeaway is that at least major league baseball looked at what I thought was pretty much every conceivable angle for the day-to-day operations, and for the reducing the likelihood of transmissions aspect. I think they were very thorough in putting this together. Um, so I, I came away a little bit encouraged by the the depth of what they put together. And then my, my pullback was just players are going to have a really hard time not spitting and like maybe not high fiving is easy, but um, you know pitchers licking their finger right to get a little bit of moisture on their fingers like that's just a habit that guys have like to break little habits like that uh, is actually going to be pretty pretty difficult. 
That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Section 422. You can find Will on Twitter at Will Salmon. I'm at Derek Van Riper. And again, if you would like a subscription to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash 422 to get 40% off. If you got questions you want us to get to on a future episode, you can send those our way on Twitter. Thanks again to Adam McKelvey for joining the show today. Be sure to check out his book as well. It is awesome. The Milwaukee Brewers at 50. Again, available locally in Milwaukee at Boswell Book Company. And you can order online at Triumph Books. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. We greatly appreciate it. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you next week from Section 422.